And then my second tip is to keep your emesis bucket handy. <laughs> Ooh, the bag. Yeah. I think my PR with that is six bags. Six bags full. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully your patient won't go there. But again, acute episodes, it's, it's so common. It's just part of the way that we're wired in the brain and with these systems being connected. So um, just like people would throw up a lot on a roller coaster, people feel like they're on a roller coaster with these conditions. And so you get that same result. So even even at rest, they might not even be moving and they yes. might have that response. So don't Excellent feel tip. badly. <laughs> just be there for them. You guys know how to support folks through suffering. That's part of being in probably PT in general, but certainly in the hospital setting. For sure. Hi, everyone. Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT. You will not want to miss today's episode. If you have ever had to treat a patient with dizziness in the emergency department, today we have Dr. Helena Esmond. She is going to talk to us about how she approaches these patients systematically to make sure we're not missing any central science to make sure we are getting on top of all those red flags and getting people the care that they need immediately. And then if it is a peripheral vertigo and something that's in our scope to manage, how do we best manage that in the emergency department? What's too much, what's not enough, and how can we get the people the care that they need? There's so much good information here, you won't wanna miss it. Thanks for being with us in the ED now. All right, welcome to the show. You're in the ED now. I'm Dr. Rebecca Griffith, and with me today is Dr. Helena Esmond. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, start off by telling us a little bit about your background, and then we're going to dive right into how to make vestibular issues in the emergency department a little less crazy. Yes. Uh, so that's a great, actually, tip off to my background. So my first job out of PT school was at Albert Einstein Hospital in North Philadelphia. Um, so we saw all comers there uh, with a variety of situations, conditions in North Philly. Um, and one that was definitely challenging uh, was vestibular and dizziness conditions because the physicians who are excellent just do not get uh, very much vestibular education when they are you know, in school. Like they basically get introduced to, this is what the vestibular system is. And if you wanna do more, become an ENT. And even then you might only do sinus surgery. So not even all ENTs get into the vestibular system. So um, this is definitely an area where, you know, the doctors would rule out stroke, right? These patients come in with significant vertigo of some kind. Oh, it's not a stroke. Okay. Um, can we send them home? And then they would you know, say, oh no, the 76 year old lady is falling down. She's so dizzy. We can't send her home. Nope. Get PT on board quick so we can get a note in and get them to a rehab. <laughs> you guys all know this story, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's how I fell in love with vestibular. Cause I'm like, wait, there's something I learned in school where I think sometimes it's just these little crystals. And if we just put them back, they'll feel better. And they don't have to go to you know, a skilled nursing facility that doesn't seem like really appropriate. They were living independently at home before, like, let's do this. Um, so that was what I wanted to do. So I asked my supervisor, could I take a course? And my first course by luck was with Rick Clendaniel, who's an excellent educator. He runs um, a popular Duke course that they do out of Emory um, at least once a year. And so uh, I just took a kind of a regular, I think, education resources or something, was putting it on in Connecticut near my sister. So I was like, oh, I'll go visit her and learn, like, good combo. 
And, you know, I just fell in love with vestibular and helping these patients who were not well understood. A lot of physicians, even an outpatient, you know, don't, again, know how to help these patients other than give them meclizine, uh, which you all are probably familiar with as a medication that's supposed to help reduce dizziness. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it just makes the patient sleepy. Uh, it does not address root cause um, of their vestibular issues. So that's kind of a con. And so, you know, it was really exciting then at Einstein to be able to kind of spearhead some educational um, endeavors. So myself and Jagi Sharana, who's another excellent PT, we were, you know, running these kind of every July when these residents would first come in bright and fresh mm-hmm. at our teaching hospital um, to have a, an hour with them to just kind of give them a very light, basic, you know, screening, BBBV, just understanding what it is. We didn't want them to be experts, just kind of know that that was there. Um, and that we could help. So then, of course, we get lots of consults, um, both to the OBS unit and the ED to say, okay, you know, is this BBV? We think it's not stroke, you know, that sort of thing is kind of usually where they were about at when they called us in. Um, And then we could help. We could help screen them. Um, If it was BBV, we could usually treat it and get them, you know, uh, on their way home and with education on how to follow up, you know, with outpatients. So, um, I just couldn't get enough vestibular because, of course, you you don't get these patients for long. They either do end up going to a rehab if it turns out that it was stroke that they said wasn't stroke. And I had two people that I kept and I said, no, you cannot send these people home. It is not BBV. And it looks like stroke to me based on my vestibular exam. So even though your early MRI is negative, <laughs> you have to keep them. And they would turn out to have stroke later. Um, so maybe save some lives. Can't say for sure. But um you know, I mean, this is our power, right? This is our, our um, part of the team, I think, in uh, the hospital setting is to, you know, just be another way to look at a patient and say, well, this is what I know this is what I'm seeing and, and what I might be concerned about, right? Um, so yeah, I just wanted to do outpatient where I could really follow these patients and treat them over time. And, and that's what I eventually transitioned to. So I think that's perfect because we definitely need more people doing that. I need some place to send these patients when they come to the emergency department because I, I will tell you that when I get a patient with dizziness, I, I'm not an expert at anything, right? Like I'm an expert at being a generalist. So I can't know the entire plan of care for these patients. I can't necessarily even figure out the definitive diagnosis. So I'm going to tell you kind of how I approach these patients. And then maybe we can dive into what you think is the best approach. So generally, when I have a patient that comes in with dizziness, and the providers feel like it's, they've done an initial screening to decide, is it central or peripheral? But I have to tell you, like, I never rely on that, because it's, it's, it can often not be correct because it is our, our area of expertise. So when I see these patients, I generally kind of follow this, like, is it central versus peripheral? Is there something I can do about it today? Like, can I actually treat this patient today? Or do I just need to make sure they're safe to go home and then refer them to a specialist? So that's like where I usually start. I start with, let's figure out if this is scary. Let's figure out if we can treat this. And then let's figure out where you should go next. So that's my baseline approach. But what I want to know from you and what I'm sure all of the other EDPTs listening are, what is the best practice? How, how should we start screening these patients? How do we, number one, not miss anything scary? Right. And, and on top of all of this, in a special way, you know, there's usually a, a bit more time pressure, right? Either we have a bunch of patients we need to get to, or they're really trying to get this patient, you know, to their next steps or whatever it is. So, 
um, you know, I would say that my, you know, emergency department or acute care exam is definitely not like what I would do an outpatient, which is totally sure. fine, right? So you really, you know, again, you're going to pick your key tools. So your first tool to me, um, and I hope a lot of folks are familiar with this to some level, is the HINTS exam, right? So HINTS, um, you're starting with the head impulse test, um, and we're, you know, quickly moving the patient's head in a small degree, which is great because usually, believe it or not, this is very well tolerated. Um, so even though patients are maybe coming in pretty, you know, symptomatic, um, a lot of times you can get this kind of quick thrust, you know, each direction, left and right. You have to do a couple in a row to be sure, but, you know, it's not like you have to do a bunch of them. So, you know, you're doing these quick thrusts, you're getting that information of whether the patient has a corrective saccade to one side which would lead us down that kind of, oh, acute neuritis or some kind of peripheral issue, you know, shouting at me that they have some kind of, um, you know, vestibular issue going on peripherally. This makes us happy um, if we think that's what's going on. But of course, if they had BPPV, which we're going to get to, that would be negative, right? So we're really just looking for hypofunction here. If we don't see that, you know, saccade either direction, could be BPPV, could be central vestibular issue. Um, so we're going to have those in our bucket as we're thinking. Um, and then we look at N is for nystagmus. And we're basically just looking for spontaneous nystagmus. The person's just sitting there looking straight ahead, you know, hopefully getting to open their eyes. <laughs> they feel pretty rotten. They might not want to. Yeah. Um, and you're just trying to get a sense of whether they're having a spontaneous beat. And you would like to know if they're having that in room light. And possibly if you have the access to some sort of visual fixation remove device, so whether it's infrared video goggles or even thicker lens frenzels, something that you can try to see better um, than just in room light. Because unfortunately, as you know, Rebecca, you know, a lot of these kind of abnormal eye movements that stem from vestibular issues, our brain tries really hard to suppress those in yeah. room light because they're trying to help the patient feel less rotten. It's a good thing that our brain tries to do this, but it's not helpful to the clinician who wants to see those abnormal eye movements. I explain that to physicians a lot. Like nystagmus can fix in room light. Yeah. It, just because they don't have nystagmus that you can see doesn't necessarily mean there isn't an issue. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. So, so this is a challenge. So I actually um, have to be grateful that I think understanding of this is growing. And I am aware of quite a few clinicians who have gotten, um, a pair of infrared video goggles and are using them, you know, in their acute care setting in the ED, um, you know, on their OBS floor, whatever it is, um, so that they're able to have that additional information, especially because as I kind of hinted at with my own personal experience, they have found that particularly for early stroke, MRIs are often falsely negative within that 24, 48 hour window. So it's really tough, right? You have this pressure to kind of discharge and to, you know, kill yeah. these patients and then you don't want to miss, you know, that key feature. So not only are we looking for spontaneous nystagmus, but what direction is it? And yes. the two main possibilities in general are what we call direction changing. So if you have the patient look towards the right, their eyes are kind of doing a quick beat towards the right. And if you have them look left, they're eyes are doing a quick beat to the left and you have them look up, there might be a bit of a quick beat up. You might see it with down, but down gaze is a little tougher because those eyelids tend to close a little bit with the down gaze. But um, this is what we're looking for. Whereas if someone again had this kind of neuritis type kind of acute vestibular peripheral issue, you know, let's say the damage or the, the neuritis was happening on the left, you're going to see a beat to the right 
possibly just a baseline here in center. When they look right, it should pull more strongly to the right. And then when they look left, that should reduce the strength of that right pull, right? So that means that the eyes just want to go right to the side that's talking, the side that's not damaged, right? So mm -hmm. this is our differential here with that N in the hints, right? So we have that head impulse test, and we have the nystagmus that we're looking for, and then we end with test of skew. That's the last two letters of hints, the T and the S. So test of skew, you're just covering the eye and then uncovering it, and you're looking for the eye to shift within its orbit, right? So this is a sense that the eyes are not aligning the way they should. And if I see this kind of misalignment that happens where you, oh, the eye bops up to say, oh, this is where I am. <laughs> okay. This is a central sign. This is yeah, that one's a real bad one. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, no you don't you. want to see a positive <laughs> test of skew. You are not no, no, sending test. someone home no. with a positive test of skew with a new acute, um, you know, unknown reason of their vertigo. <laughs> like, yeah, I do not like that. Yeah. So yeah. for people who are like, I find when I talk to people about the HINTS exam, they're like, what? Like, and that's not a thing that they learned in school. Mm -hmm. But then I explain what the components are and they're like, oh, I did learn those things. I didn't know that it was put together. So right. for people who don't know, can you, can you kind of speak to like the psychometrics about the HINTS and like, and how this actually can help us reduce imaging? Yeah. So the HINTS is um, really been mostly studied by Dr. Newman Toker out of Johns Hopkins, although there's several other um, folks around the world that have also been doing research on hints. And, you know, what they're trying to do, um, because they don't even always have PTs at all, depending on the hospital, right. is they're just helping, trying to help physicians to also do this sort of what we'll call triage or kind of early identification of why is this person having acute vertigo and, you know, should we be worried about stroke or are we looking at something although unpleasant to the patient, not life-threatening. Yes. <laughs> benign. Benign is my favorite word. Yes, I know. I'm like, benign, but not, that's, I always tell them, they're like, but I feel terrible. I'm like, I'm not trying to do <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't incapacitating. I just said it was benign. <laughs> I just say, it means it won't kill you, and this is good. <laughs> so yes. I try to reassure them that way, right? Um, so no, there's tons of literature at this point that is strongly supportive of the hints. Now, it's never going to be 100%. I don't think there's hardly a test out there. So recognize that. But once that's, you know, acknowledged, um, you know, as far as like how accurate it is, again, it is far more accurate um, for that early stroke, um, you know, that if you're seeing, you know, a negative hints test, so they don't have that, you know, kind of correct a saccade, nothing peripheral going on there from that aspect and they have that spontaneous astigmas, this direction changing, and they have a positive skew, almost guaranteed they've got some sort of stroke going on. Um, again, assuming this is new, this is not something they've already had. Um, so this is the high value of putting those tests together um, and knowing that they don't take cluster. long to do, which is also really valuable again in the ED, but go ahead. Yeah, just a little cluster, getting all those tests together and they give you a lot of information quickly. So exactly. I, I really like that. Now, how do people document their hints findings? Because I see this done, like residents will put hints negative. And I'm like, <laughs> and I've done that. I, I'll admit it. I've, I've put hints negative or I'll put hints unremarkable. Like how, how would you recommend people are actually charting this effectively and accurately? Yeah, I like to break it down a little bit. I may take a couple extra seconds, but you know. So what job phrases are for? I know, right? So hints exam performed, and then I'll say for each test. So I'll say positive or negative 
head impulse test. And if it's positive, I'll say to the right or to the left, right? So that's the side that I'm implicating as that peripheral lesion potentially. Um, nystagmus, I'll just state either no spontaneous nystagmus or I'll state, you know, spontaneous nystagmus, direction changing with gaze, or I'll state spontaneous nystagmus to the right in all, you know, directions of gaze, indicative of a left, you know, peripheral lesion. I'll even go ahead and, and I know in vestibular, in particular, I feel confident to say indicative of or strongly indicative of, or, you know, I know sometimes people say signs and symptoms consistent with, and that's okay too. I like that. I'm a sign um, and symptoms Nothing wrong with that. With you know, it depends yeah. on how you want to say, but I see myself, at least at this point in my career, as the person they're looking to, to say, this is what totally I'm agree. consistent with. This is strongly indicative of, you know, I'm not guaranteeing it. I'm saying that that's, that was a strong positive test there. If you're not sure, say, you know, equivocal findings or whatever you got to say, but, you know, obviously be truthful. But, um, you know, if I've seen like yelling at me that this is the issue, I'm going to say, hey, I'm really seeing that this is what I think is going on and this is where I'm at. Um, and that's fair. And then a test of skew again, you'll either say, you know, positive test of skew. And then I will say, you know, um, some kind of descriptor. It can be very light, you know, left eye, you know, repositions to neutral, you know, when uncovered or something like that, just what I saw. Um, and then if it's negative, I'll just say negative. And most people know negative in the in the medical world means good. <laughs> it means we didn't have that that finding Continue. Um, that we were looking for that, yeah. that, you know, would say there's something going on here. So um, that's how I would do it. Okay, so we're, we've done our HINTS exam. What's next? Right. So, yep. Let's say we do the HINTS exam and glory be, there's no signs of central, uh, central stroke situation. And but if there are, even... we're done. Yeah. If right. There are, we're done. Okay. <laughs> we're getting just to be completely clear for anybody listening. If there are central signs, we are doing our S bar very quickly with the medical team and recommending imaging. Yep. If you're very, very concerned, you're just calling a stroke alert. Like you do not pass go. You just call that alert and then you go talk to the attending right. doc. So just to be clear, if, we're, if we are suspecting central signs, we are acting in that moment. Right. And when I've been wrong, I haven't been wrong that there were central signs. It just ended up not being stroke. Yeah. Um, Either like way. It was early MS. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. I've and they were coming that. with a cute episode of Vertigo because they're having an NS, MS flare, but they didn't know that's what it was yet. Um, Either way, we're taking a pause. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a, in the hands of neurology. This is in the hands of, you know, folks who are looking at these scans for what kind of lesions might be there. They may not yes. be stroke lesions, uh, but they're lesions nonetheless. Right. Perfect. Um, so, yes. A plus on that for sure. Um, okay. Yes. No central. Great. And then oh. you might say, oh, definitely signs of a strong neuritis. Okay. So now we're letting the docs know our findings. We're educating the patient. Um, and probably what's going to happen is they'll be sent home, which is appropriate. Um, they'll be recommended to follow up with their primary care, possibly an ENT. Um, if there's signs of hearing loss, and let's talk about that for a second, because sudden significant hearing loss can also go with stroke, right? And this yes. is called the HINTS plus. So I did want to mention that, right? So, you know, just because we think of a hearing loss as being possibly peripheral, which it could also be, mm -hmm. to be fair, it is kind of a mixed sign. It's not yes one or yes the other, but strong, like, whoa, I could hear out of this ear and now I can hear nothing. They absolutely need to be, you know, again, ruling out stroke pretty thoroughly. Red flag. Um, yep. 
Now, could it just be from a peripheral issue, especially if they're also having tons of only peripheral signs, positive head impulse tests, you know, a spontaneous dystagmus that's beating, you know, unidirectionally? Okay, then if we have, you know, hearing loss on that side that we think the hypofunction is, this also makes sense to us. <laughs> um, and that patient might be recommended to get a round of steroids on the outpatient side in the hopes that that will calm down the inflammation more quickly so that they get less damage, so that they have a better likelihood. Um, and the results really in the literature are mixed on how true this is. There's lots of debate around, but luckily we don't have to handle it. It's all no. EMT, so we don't have to handle how much steroid or you know when it should be put in exactly or anything like that. We just say, definitely go see the ENT because they may wanna do that um, you know, to possibly mitigate the damage essentially. So for those patients, this is like, so our central science patients, those are an evaluate and refer. Then this patient with like that, that kind of neuritis, that's going to be an evaluate, treat and refer. Yeah. Cause we can still add some value to this patient in this moment. We can provide education. We can provide any fall risk training. We can provide settling techniques. Yes. Anything else? Yes, you would please. Add? Yes. All of that. They, they'll absolutely need settling techniques. You know, some people get excited about vestibular care and they want to jump to our gaze stability exercises. Nope, I do not do that in the ED. Fabulous mm -hmm. for those patients in the outpatient, but please, yeah. please, please do do not give them uh, to the acute, you know, this patient is having a mesis there, you know, like this is not the time. It to, is not you know, the time. It is not no. the time. And I also find like patients have a lot of questions about that. And I also don't want to send them home with something that maybe they start doing it correctly right. without any follow-up. So I, I personally do not ever give patients exercises like that unless I know they won't get any follow-up. Agreed. No, there is an exception there. And yeah, but yeah, I totally yeah. agree with you. This is not, this is not a case where I'm treating the pathology. This is a case where I'm going to like help manage the patient's symptoms. It's just like if it were a pain related issue, we're in symptom modulation phase. Right. Like so at my goal here, angle, we're not giving exercises yet, people. Nope, <laughs> we are focusing on symptom modulation. So I'm working with them on settling. I'm working with them on feeling safe. I'm working with them on can they function? Can they turn while they're walking without falling over? So I just want to like anything else you would add to that? Yeah, no, I think the key are, I teach them what I call a spotting. So they use yep, their same. eyes like a ice skater, yes. right? So yep. okay, as you turn your head for right now, just look from object to object to object. If you're going to bend down, object to object to object, because your brain needs extra information to know where it is right now, because your inner ear is saying, we don't know where we are. Yes. And that's why you're feeling dizzy, nauseous, whatever, fill in the symptom there, right? Uh-huh. Absolutely. I, I also like for any kind of vestibular issue, and maybe you can tell me if this is crazy or not. I like to have people stand in the corner and push their head and all of their extremities into the corner because then they get a lot of like somatosensory input and it makes them feel like they aren't moving. Yes. Is that like not totally crazy. bogus? It's, it's grounding. Some people call it grounding. Okay. Um, some people call it um, plugging in. I don't care what you call it. Um, you could do it in a corner standing. You can do it kind of, if you don't have a corner available, just against a wall, at least standing, you can do it seated in a chair with a back to it and preferably armrests. You want as much proprioceptive touch body information, all of that. Like, you know, they get that pressure sense, get everything again, same as the eye spotting. You're trying to use your other sensory systems besides the system, which is temporarily not working well yep. <laughs> to, you know, tell you where you are to just tamp down those symptoms. Perfect, perfect recommendation. Whew. 
Okay, Love good. It. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Okay. So, and then, good. so we're referring that patient on. Yes. But so if we're not thinking it's neuritis, but we still think, of, and it's not a central issue, where we, where does our brain go next in our, in our like examination algorithm, where do you go next? Right. So the big number three, most likely next on the list to check. Um, and really it's the most likely issue, but you want to do that hints exam first. Cause again, you want to people right out the gate. Those are not people you need to bother checking for BPPV because even if they have it, that's not what you're treating right now. No, no, nope. <laughs> you're fish to fry. Um, so if if you're um, kind of through the hints and you're oh, I don't think it's going on there for central or neuritis, then you're going to BPPV testing. Okay. So your two big tests here, um, or the classic versions are the Dix Hall Pike. Um, so hopefully y'all got that in school at this point. Um, unless you've been a PT for quite a long time, but then it's always a good opportunity to learn if you haven't already. Um, or the, and then the supine roll test and my preferred order, and everybody's kind of got their opinions on this is if I have a patient who at all has a sense of, oh, I was really feeling terrible when I rolled onto my right side, mm -hmm. I'm going to test the left Hall pike first. And why is that? Because maybe that's going to be negative. I'd like to finish with testing the one I think is going to be most likely to be positive because then I will go right into treatment and okay. having confidently checked all the other canals. We're excluding first. Yes. Got it. Okay. Because I, I usually test the one that I think is going to be positive mm. first. And the reason for that is I'm trying to minimize discomfort because these patients are vomiting. They feel Fair. real bad. So I'm trying to be efficient. And like, if I'm, if, if it's quacking like a BPPV quacky duck, like I'm just going to go and do the thing. Yeah. But that makes sense to me too, what you're saying. Like we're clearing canals first so that we don't mess anything up. Exactly. Well, the, the big it. thing is we're, we're in the ED in particular, and honestly also in outpatient, you've got patients coming in and they're already saying I've thrown up three times. I yeah. they're saying I have a ton of symptoms. If that's kind of the report, which in the ED is highly likely, because if they yeah. just felt mildly dizzy, they probably didn't head to the ED. No, they probably had to call an ambulance <laughs> or they were crawling around at home. because they They'll fall down, but they won't, yeah. <laughs> they won't go to the ED exactly. for, the, for the, the mild dizziness they feel, that they think they're just dehydrated or something. So if they're majorly symptomatic, you don't have to do the Dix Hall Pike so fast. No, 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 no. People no. kind of just have this tendency, and I've seen physicians <sighs> in particular, they yes. want to get a good test, and they don't they want do. a false negative, and I respect that. But if they're highly symptomatic, trust me, you're not going to miss it. It's almost guaranteed. No, and I also find that um, what what physicians will say is, I did the Hall Pike, and they felt really bad, and then I epilated them, and they felt way worse. So I find they do it very quickly and they do it one time and then they stop because the patient feels real bad or is panicky or is afraid. And I, I find that they didn't get a clean exam because the patient was like resisting or the patient closed their eyes or they just start vomiting in the middle. Like speak to that. Like the speed is not of the <laughs> essence here, right? No, slowly, gently. With some sense of security. The worst case scenario is you test somebody real gently and everything's negative and they feel like meh, but not real bad. Mm -hmm. You can retest if you think you need to. And although you may get a false negative just from retest, if you load the Dix Hall Pike, mm -hmm. this is really cool. So Jeff Walter and his team, um, 
they're in Pennsylvania near me and they have done this recent um, exam or um, a kind of additional bonus, I guess I'd call it, to the, the Dix Hall Pike, where you basically, if I'm gonna test the right side, I'm gonna test my right ear, you're gonna turn the patient's head to the right and tuck their chin down about 30 degrees and have them stay there for about 30 seconds. And when that time has passed, then you bring them into the Dix Hall Pike. And basically anatomically, you're dumping crystals if they're there Kind of as far over on the kind of the end we didn't want them um, as possible and then when you dump them back you'll even if they were kind of spread out or weren't going to be like a strong response you're clustering mm -hmm. them so that when you dump them back you'll get a stronger response and they found it significantly improved um the accuracy essentially mm -hmm. of the six hall pike so you don't need to load somebody who's highly symptomatic because chances no. are you're going to get a nice positive test with just your nice gentle version of a regular yes. Dixel pike. So don't load everybody. But you can always load them if you're like, I think this is what's going on, but I'm just not quite getting that response I expected. Okay. So I love that as an option. Love it. Right? But for everybody else, you do your gentle regular Dixel pike on the unaffected side. You'll either see nothing or you might see a little something because you can get movement of crystals on the unaffected, uh, of the affected side, the crystals are moving, but you're still getting them to move a little bit, even by testing the unaffected side. And this is where looking at your eye movements is helpful. Hopefully you can get a good look at them. Um, again, if you can do some kind of visual fixation remove, that's ideal, because it does not usually drive up people's dizziness to be in the dark. In fact, a lot of people with peripheral stuff feel better in yeah. the dark. Less sensory competition. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can, you know, goggles or, or frenzels, um, you do that unaffected side, that should look good. Or maybe they felt a little something, but you're like, yeah, that's that's not what I think is going on here. Yeah. Then I bring their head right up into neutral and do the supine roll test right there. And I okay. check the horizontal canal. So I don't have to sit them back up, which is usually what makes everybody, no matter what their vestibular problem is, feel a bit rotten. Yeah, nobody likes that. Change position, you're you know, getting that reticular formation kind of amped up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that just right there, do the supine roll test. Probably going to be negative because luckily it's only about 10 to 30% of cases are horizontal, but you don't want to miss that. No, it does happen in the ED because I find those are pretty severe. So people do come with that. And yeah. I think More in the past, throw up and they're not it. just with horizontal than posterior in my experience as well. Yeah. So that's yeah. a great tip. Yeah. So definitely okay. check those horizontals. You know, and if you find it in the horizontals, treat it right there. You're already there. You can easily do a log roll if it's, you know, floating. If they're stuck, there's a couple options you can get into pretty easily um, from there. And then assuming that looks good and you're like, oh, I just know it's left posterior. I just think I know in my gut. Then you're ready to do it. You've ruled out everything else. You're super confident and you can do the left exhale pipe then. Let's say, you, again, you started right. You're pretty sure it was left. Um, and that's probably your positive. You treat that. And you're good to go. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's really. And then they think you're made of magic. If you're really for a rush, go ahead and check that side you suspect first. And if you find it there, go ahead right into treatment. It's not like any one way is the only right way. I mean, yeah. you know this. Yeah, well, for sure. And different patients need different approaches, right? Yeah. So I have had the other issue that I run into sometimes with patients like in the whole pike position is uh, they get very anxious 
am very panicky. And I've had people grab my badge. I've had people grab my hair. I, you know, so some some things that I add sometimes is I will hold their head with one hand and I'll put a hand on their sternum mm. to help give them some input. I have uh, with really difficult cases gotten a lead vest from radiology yeah. and thrown that on top of a patient to help them with that. Or sometimes I'll have them hold on to the bars on the gurney just so they know that they aren't moving. And then between bouts of the Ebley maneuver, how long would you recommend waiting with these highly symptomatic patients? Oh, I mean, the recommendation, if you had the time, would be 10 yeah. to 15 minutes. Oh, but that's not realistic. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, I'm just letting you know what's in the literature, which is probably mostly outpatient based, let's be honest. Yeah. Because um, that's where they can really do that research a lot more easily. Um, but that's to guarantee the reduced likelihood of what we'll call a false negative. Okay. Um, you know, you want to know if it's clear and the literature also has been mixed, but the most recent is do a round of, let's say it's left posterior canal. You, you do a round of the modified Epley, you let them rest. I hopefully five minutes, if you can give them that, I mean, I think that's enough to let most people settle. Um, I have had people in the ED that I used to see get Zofran. If I already knew they'd thrown up, I try yeah. to get them premedicated before I'm even, because that's not going to tamp down your nystagmus. It's only going to tamp down the nausea. So Correct. I am fan, a fan of the antiemetics. <laughs> Same. Um, because it's, it's not like Mechazine or, or some of the other um, kind of more ones that are really designed to tamp down vestibular response. Right. Um, that could, you know, give you these false negatives and then you don't know what's going on just because you couldn't see it because it was tamped down. So ideally, it's more tamping down the nausea piece um, is key. Less vomit is good. Yes. This is, I am a fan. <laughs> okay. So we've treated our patient with BPPV. They feel, I usually find 50 to 80% better. Then I make sure they can walk. And then I usually give them a handout that I like with like decent discharge instructions that explains what happened to them, why they're okay, what they should do next. But one thing that I still am finding people tell people is that they need to sleep upright. And I don't tell people that because that's not really consistent with the literature, correct? You are correct. So, so I always cross that out. <laughs> cross that out. The literature says unequivocally that as a whole, and remember studies are done on groups. It makes no difference whether you were to tell somebody to walk around like Frankenstein, don't lay flat, don't lay on the side that was affected, yada, 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 all the restrictions that you can imagine. Or if you tell them, just go live your life as you normally do. No difference in recurrence. Perfect. Okay. What I will give a caveat to that is a lot of folks are fearful or hesitant. Yeah. So I will account for that. And I will sometimes say for the next day, or two days, some kind of leeway. Maybe don't sleep on that affected side, just to let you settle out. And if you feel better with an extra pillow or a little bit of a wedge, that's fine. Yes. But my long game for you is to just be able to move normally because at the end of the day, it's not gonna make a difference. Because we don't wanna foster fear avoidance behaviors in, re in relation to vestibular issues, just like with pain. Correct, and I have had patients come in with a major neck issue. They were seeing an orthopedic PT <laughs> they were sleeping in a recliner for two years because oh. they were afraid of provoking no. their vertigo. No. And the clinician wanted to do some supine activity and manual with that person. And they're like, no, no, no. And they're like, can you please let Helena look at oh. you and take care of this? And then we can work on your neck more effectively. Oh, that's terrible. 
She absolutely had left posterior canal BBVV actually. And yeah, it, people think that BBVV is temporary and it can be, it can go away on its own, which is great when it does, but it can stay not only for weeks and months, but years. It's just a big chunk, just sluice loose every time they move and they just learn not to move to not sluice it. So it's not getting dissolved. Nothing's happening to it. It's just hanging out there. No joke. And I, I had to really call, like, I mean, she was a slow, I was really slowly tested her to say that, you know, and I only got a little nystagmus, but that was enough for me. I knew what was going on. Yeah. Treated that left posterior canal uh, really gently and she did great. And she was so it. happy and I'd never known it could be treated. And you guys know this story. So it's just changing yeah. lives. Really? With a little sloosh sloosh. That's the new word of the day. Sloosh sloosh. Okay. Sloosh baby. So we have made magic happen. This patient is on their way home. I've, I have probably set them up with an outpatient referral to a vestibular PT just in case the symptoms do recur. Um, tell me what you know about the somersault maneuver. That's a great question. Because, so, and, and I'll yeah. tell you why this is go such ahead. a big deal at our yeah. hospital. Because yeah, yeah, the, the person who made the, the somersault maneuver is uh, works at the hospital that I work at. And right. so it's very common. Also, it comes up very commonly when people Google it. BPPB. And so can you just speak to the somersault maneuver and whether or not we should be having patients try this and like what your experience with that is? Sure. So the short answer is anatomically, um, it can work, right? Mm -hmm. It follows the path of the canal. If you're treating posterior canal and you know which side's affected, which the maneuver does not determine. So that's a con to it already because the mm -hmm. first position of your modified epile is the Dix Hall pipe. Mm -hmm. You're testing and then going into treatment, whereas you'd have to test and then decide, oh, I think it's the side. Let me try this somersault maneuver. The biggest challenge to that maneuver is that it requires a fair amount of physical ability. It does. So I see this like handout being given to 85 year old people and they're like, get on the floor and do this somersault. Yeah, you have to get on your, your knees and you, and you lean your head forward and then you turn your head really significantly to one side so you need significant neck rotation range of motion it's demanding in that sense okay so that's a pretty big um con and even if someone is physically able um so maybe they're very mobile they're feeling really bad usually with bbb yeah. you're moving these crystals in a position that's not supported you know whereas when they're laying down and we're gently rolling they can grip the table they can feel secure even though it feels like they're literally flipping around mm -hmm. like this is a place where we can treat treating, you know, kind of on your knees and then turning your head and moving about is difficult. So if For it sure. was a significant case, that's going to be tough. And then the last issue, which is perhaps minor to some folks, is that so far and it may prove out to be, you know, just as effective as the modified epile. But right now there's only a couple studies showing its efficacy and very little you know, yet comparing it to other maneuvers to kind of figure out, well, on average, like, should this be a go-to or is this kind of like plan D after you've tried all the other ones? And yeah. I'm open-minded at whatever pretty much works. that's not harm. I'm yeah, game. For sure. Um, so I'm not anti somersault at all, but I think practically speaking, when I can clear, you know, 93 to 95% of my patients with a modified epile that they tolerate pretty well, that's kind of my go-to. I'm open to, you know, really there's several other out there besides even the somersault that people have proposed. And I have, you know, used most of them at some point because, you know, an outpatient, you sometimes get these, I mean, you can get it, I suppose, in the hospital too, but you're not going to get days and days to work on it. Right. Um, you know, I've had these tough cases where you did have to kind of, you know, try some additional maneuvers or, or 
um, adding vibration or something that, you know, in general is not necessary, but for certain cases you may need to do. Okay, perfect. So this has gone by really fast and I feel like we've just skimmed the surface. So for people who are listening, like, first of all, how do they, what resources should they look to? And then how do they find you for more? And then maybe we need to have another podcast to talk about more differential diagnosis of things like Meniere's disease and maldevartment and all these other things that come up in the emergency department or those people that are sitting at their desk and they have sudden onset of vertigo and they come by ambulance. They, they didn't wake up and roll over and have disease. Right. And how do we differentiate between migraine vertigo or anxiety related vertigo? So I think maybe mm-hmm. that'll have to be episode number two because <laughs> there's so much to unpack here. But so what, 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 <laughs> Doing what great. resources <laughs> and references do you recommend people look to that are reliable? Absolutely. So um, there's several great resources out there. Thank goodness. Um, first of all, you know, we've talked about looking at the eyes and eye movements quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have a lot of practice at that or you haven't had mentorship on that, that can be tough. And okay. I was there. Um, so I know <laughs> um, there's free resources, which are fantastic. And one of the biggest ones is on the University of Utah's website, um, Dr. Dan Gold has a library of eye movements. So all these different eye movements that are abnormal in nature, really rare central vestibular signs, um, you know, to your peripheral classic BBBV, and it's all free. So that is great. Um, and they do, you know, provide some explanation as to the case example and what's going on in it. So it, it's really a great resource. Um, secondarily, we actually just created a course. Uh, it's a two hour course. It's really basic to intermediate and it's completely designed to give folks practice first with graphics and graphic videos, and then with actual patient videos, again, not even worrying about diagnosis yet, but like, oh, yep. The eye was beating to the left there. Oh, the eye was beating up there. Oh, that was a torsional eye movement up and to the left. So that you can really just feel confident to say, I know what I just saw. And that is going to be that first piece before you can then apply that to, okay, what patterns is it fitting? Oh, it's fitting a peripheral pattern for a neuritis on the left or what have you, right? So that's another option. That is a paid course. Um, It's $150 and uh, you get CEUs as a PT for sure. And we're working on some other disciplines there. Third resource is North 49 Physio. Um, they have a free ocular motor library as well. It's not as expansive, um, with as many rare cases as Dan Gold's, but it's got tons of examples of BPPV and hypofunction, which is your two most common. Thank goodness. Thank <laughs> um, goodness. Yeah. So yes. Um, so that's another great resource. So, I mean, I am all about the videos because if you're not feeling confident, you know, yes, the history is important. But if so many people who go onto Facebook groups and say, oh, the patient felt this when they turned this way and that when they felt that way. But yet at the end of the day, the patient could have vestibular migraine just as easily as they could have BPPV. Um, because, you know, just like with pain, I'm sure you all know this, like a pain in the leg could be from the back or you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's our physical exam that really ties that history together. Yes. Okay. So how do they find you? Yes. Oh, yes, me. Um, so you can find Vestibular First um, at our website, vestibularfirst.com. And there we have tons of educational resources as well, by the way. We have articles. We have journal clubs, which are on our YouTube page. Um, 
that are all free to view as well. We have different guests every month. We've got, I think, up to like 20 now up there. I don't know. It's a lot. Uh, we've been doing it for like two years straight. So <laughs> um, we also have our social media. So at Vestibular First on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. Um, so those are all available. And we always have our contact us on our website as well. So if any specific questions, um, I'm always happy to help. Okay, and we will be having a course specifically on emergency department vestibular examination, evaluation, and hands-on care coming this January. It'll be an in-person course. And also look for some webinars on how to do those things as well coming up soon uh, later this spring. Thank you so much for being on the show today. What are like your parting three tips for EDPTs to not get overwhelmed with vestibular issues? Yes. So the first thing is use those resources and just start to build your knowledge. Um, don't hesitate to, you know, again, reach out to the clinicians who are running a course that you might attend or a free webinar that you might watch. Most vestibular clinicians are fantastic, caring people. They want to be helpful. They're happy to be mentors for you or they can point you to somebody. You know, I mean, that's really what it's about is, you know, just kind of getting the exposure. And, you know, sometimes you work in a place where you might only initially get a patient once every few months, and that's not enough. The experience alone, if you don't get that, you need to fill that in. So instead of being intimidated, see this is a huge way that you can help so many patients, you know, immediate impact with BPPV, but even the rest of those patients, you know, and then you're also a huge resource to like everyone else, like the doctors. Once we started, got, got our program going at Einstein, I mean, they were like, you guys are, thank you so much. This is so great. I mean, like, you know, and some of them are not prone to praise. Um, and they just recognize that this was a really big value add besides can they walk or not? Can you write a note? And that was, you know, to me, really rewarding. So vestibular care is even at a, at a very light level where you're just kind of triaging is so rewarding. Um, so um, dig into it a little bit. If at all you have an interest, and I hope you do, because you want to help these patients that are coming through the hospital and, and be their game changer. And it doesn't mean you have to be a vestibular ex expert. You just need a good toolbox of knowledge. Um, and then my second tip is to keep your emesis bucket handy. <laughs> Ooh, the bag. Yeah. I think my PR with that is six bags, six bags full. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully your patient won't go there. But again, acute episodes, it's, it's so common. It's just part of the way that we're wired in the brain and with these systems being connected. So um, just like people would throw up a lot on a roller coaster, people feel like they're on a roller coaster with these conditions. And so you get that same result, so even even at rest. They might not even be moving and they yes. might have that response. So don't feel badly. <laughs> just be there for them. You guys know how to support folks through suffering. That's part of being in probably PT in general, but certainly in the hospital setting. For sure. Um, and that's where being best friends with the nurses is also yes. <laughs> my third tip in the ED. And <laughs> as probably just everyone who works in any kind of acute care setting, you better be best friends uh, with those nurses to help you out. And the housekeeping, also my best friends. <laughs> yes. Most underrated service in the emergency department are the housekeepers who are turning those rooms over and coming to the rescue. Amen to that. Absolutely. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think vestibular can feel scary and overwhelming, but, you know, you get the right, you know, baseline education and, and an understanding of, you know, even just the basic anatomy. You do not have to be, again, the, the person who wrote the book and you can really help these patients in a very impactful way. So. 
Perfect. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time, your knowledge and expertise. You're in the ED now and you're officially discharged. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the EDDPT.com. You're officially discharged.